Hello and welcome to Social X, the podcast from Humentum. My name's George Miller, and I'm your host on this episode. A few weeks ago, in the pre-COVID-19 world, I spoke with Olga Wall, who is Chief of Compliance and Contract Administration at Palladium, where she oversees an annual budget of around $165 million across diverse international procurement and assistance portfolios. Our conversation was a chance to get to know the person behind the Lost in Regulation blog, which Olga began over a decade ago, and which you can find today on LinkedIn. Her aim there is to explore compliance and best practices for USAID grantees and contractors, and she does it in a way that's clear, engaging and engaged. In the About section of her LinkedIn profile, for instance, she says, The ability to simplify means to eliminate the unnecessary, so that the necessary may speak, making following rules fun since 1996. She might just convince you that that's possible. In a wide-ranging conversation, we talked about some of Olga's career experiences, such as the decision she took in 2003. One of my former colleagues asked me to join this program providing mission support services for the USAID of uh, Iraq. I jumped at the opportunity. I had a four-month-old baby, but I thought, I mean, why not? But in fact, Olga's career began in TV as a line producer and translator from her native Russian on a BBC natural history documentary series, The Realms of the Russian Bear. Uh, that kind of focused on different parts of the former Soviet Union and the animals and the plants, and but with a focus on like different bears that lived uh, throughout the Soviet Union. And so I had a very, very fortunate experience of joining uh, that crew as uh, sort of a line producer. Though filming bears may seem to have little in common with her current role, she sees a common thread in terms of being aware of the wider world, sharing knowledge and exercising empathy. A few years after that TV experience, she found herself engaging her analytical skills as part of a new venture from KPMG subsidiary, the Behrens Group. This was the time when European Bank of Reconstruction was coming up, the foreign tasses, and all these international donors and international financial institutions that were pouring money into the former Soviet Union and into the Eastern Europe and Central Europe to try to do privatization and different projects. And so they decided to open an office in London because they wanted to deal with European donors. Um, they had already been working with USAID. So to me, I was looking for the next thing, and that just sounded amazing. And so that was a lot of fun. That was basically creating an office and bringing in um, a lot of uh, sort of American development experts and uh, who wanted to bid on projects with EBRD and foreign tasses. When this venture started up, Olga was the only person in the London office. A far cry from the kind of setup she's part of now, I suggested. I mean, that is the natural progress, right? So you have to kind of start from the bottom. You have to understand simply what it's about and what it takes to run a program, run their office, run, you know, an international organization or connect people. I do attribute this uh, to 
my you know early experiences in, as a, as a producer and and a, as an administrator with BBC, for example, and then so other you know other projects that I worked on, just because it is all about it's all about attention detail, really. I mean, I guess a lot of people find the regulation a headache, a drag, something they really they're afraid of. They'll you know they only engage with it when they absolutely have to with gritted teeth. But you. You clearly take a sort of, is it an intellectual pleasure or is it, is it seeing the big picture and how that fits in? What, what, is there something about your mindset, you think, that's a, a little bit different from, from a lot of people who run in the opposite direction, if they can, from regulation? It may be partially because of the experiences and, and where I came from and where I grew up. You know, I've seen a lot of bad regulations. I've seen a lot of regulations that don't apply to everyone. They apply selectively to people and they don't really make sense because they're not there to make sense. And so, you know, I find the, the regulations that apply to foreign aid, for example, if you actually research the why, it actually starts to make a lot of sense. Um, and it starts being fun because you, you get to research of where something came from, why somebody decided it was a good idea and why so many other people sign on to that decision. I, I do find it intellectually stimulating. I also find it, you know, it, it's it's fun for me to break it down and take it down to the basic level because a lot of people see it at the end, right? They see this the 2,800 pages of the federal acquisition regulations and they think, well, this is ludicrous. You know, why would we have to comply with this? But, you know, if you find out why they're there, a lot of the regulations are actually uh, making a lot of sense in terms of fiscal responsibility and accountability to the taxpayers and maybe uh, favoring some of the smaller businesses and, and uh, socioeconomic programs. And, and they're really representing the best practices that our countries have in managing taxpayer funding. Mind you, not all of the regulations are there um, that do make sense. I mean, some of them are ludicrous, some of them are ridiculous, and the majority of those sort of live their uh, short period of time and now are discarded, I find, anyway, or people just start ignoring them and nobody watches. The current trend of this whole guillotine for every new regulation in the U.S. you have to cut too, I think it's a good one. I think there are a lot of stuff that's just outdated that no longer applies or are plain, you know, plain ludicrous that, that can be cut. That was a question I wanted to ask you. When you have a system which is complex, sometimes it's just inherently complex and it needs to be complex, but sometimes it can sort of accrete complexity and, and become complex simply because you know time has passed and it hasn't been overhauled what do you see the um the USAID regulation system as, as being necessary complexity given the complexity of the of the projects and the different models uh USAID specifically you know I ADA hasn't been uh rewritten since 1984 so right. I, I do think it's a little outdated um it is really not it was written for a different time uh there was a very different agency that was dealing with those regulations and they had you know very different uh acquisition and assistance staff um, the contracting and agreement officers. And, and there was a very different community on the other side. It was a much smaller community. And the contracts were not nearly 
uh, as huge as we have now. You know, the, you know, if you got a, a million dollar contract 20 years ago, this was a huge win for um, anybody uh, dealing with USAID. Now, you know, people don't get out of bed for less than a hundred million dollars, which, you know, it's, it's just sort of the sign of times. So I do think that they need to be uh, rehauled. They need to be simplified. They need to be streamlined. Um, some of the stuff that's there, it's good. It does address some of the parameters uh, under which the foreign aid is being provided. It's also forcing the contractors to exhibit best practices of the American business, if you will. This is the way how I look at it. When I explain yeah. to people why you're doing this, the idea is not just that you have to comply with these clauses and that's it. You don't have, you know, you need to understand why you're doing it and you need to explain to your grantees or subordinates or subcontractors that maybe not um, U.S. companies, you know, why those controls are in place. And maybe from complying with those controls, they will learn a best practice in business that they, you know, this is sort of a secondary, if you will, benefit you know, basically bringing the best practices of competition, fair dealing, uh, accountability, responsibility for your actions, you know, not no waste, no fraud, no abuse, you know, sexual exploitation, sexual harassment, those things there are forcing those companies to think through how they conduct business, which is, I think, is a sort of a secondary benefit of subcontracting and, uh, you know, involving companies in the countries where we work in that way. You had a number of years working as a USAID program manager, um, which involved spending time in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I wondered what that kind of engagement on the ground, sort of how that changed you or developed you as a, as a professional and as a person. How were you different after you'd had those um, years of experience from you were when you, when you went into it? It's a good question. Um, it was um, one of those things, actually, that is quite relevant nowadays and people talk about. It. I just had my baby, my first baby, in 2002. And I was basically on maternity leave and looking to re-engage, you know, I had taken a year off and nobody really wanted me. And so I was looking to re-engage and try to go back into the workforce. I started sort of writing little articles here and there and trying to help people understand some of the regulations. And I had a lot of time just sort of sit and read. Um, and so that prompted me to kind of reach out to uh, my former employers and my former colleagues and sort of exchange ideas and maybe putting, you know, there was, this was pre-blog time. So we were just doing it via email. Then, you know, one of my former colleagues asked me to join this program, which was providing mission support services for the USAID of uh, Iraq. This was when there, there was no embassy and there was no mission yet. And so, you know, I jumped at the opportunity. I had a four-month-old baby, but I thought, I mean, why not? This is incredible. You know, this is an, an incredible opportunity to work inside the agency, being a contractor, but work within the agency, understand how agency operates and how they field personnel and what those people go through in managing the programs that we implement. So... This was an incredible experience from that standpoint. It took me to a completely different, it took me on the other side, if you will, of the contract, of the award. 
And so uh, gave me that sort of 360 understanding of how the programs are managed and what challenges, you know, people on the government side go through in managing the programs. So I, I think that was, you know, that was definitely one of the biggest benefits and definitely worth all the all the dangers and um, some, you know, discomforts and you know maybe some sacrifices in in the process. That period was a period when very large sums of money were beginning to be spent by by the U.S. in both Iraq and Afghanistan. That and the the volatility of the situation did they really sort of accentuate the the challenges? This is what a lot of the relief agencies deal with all the time. You know, they don't go into uh, a nice, uh, you know, stable uh, middle-class countries to help. They go in the areas where there is, uh, you know, conflict or uh, hunger or disease, you know, whatever. And, And so this is normal operation mode for a lot of the relief agencies. It does test some of the systems and frameworks and regulations that we do have, because a lot of them, at least in the United States, are really aimed at sort of peacetime, you know, and U.S. companies working. They they don't take into consideration working in a remote village in Afghanistan. And so you have these regulations that as an implementer you have to comply with, but you're presented with a completely different reality in which you have to comply with. You know, you cannot, you cannot fill out your timesheet while you're uh, hiding behind an armored car, you know, in a, during the explosion. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a possibility. I don't care how much audit. Uh, you threaten, you know, people are not going to do it. So it, this is sort of amplified. I mean, this is just a microcosm of um, the challenges. But so I think the regulations need to be flexible in that way. I think other agencies do it better. They may not do the volume that aid does. And so it may not be as challenging. But, you know, certainly in the, in the U.S., you know, I have once called OMB asking them how uh, we would apply a regulation in the aid context. And they said, well, we never think about aid. You're sort of an outlier agency. And when we write those, we don't think about you. <laughs> so like, yes, but but we have to comply with it. Um, so, you know, please help me. How, how would you comply with it if you were in this situation? They couldn't, they couldn't answer. They think that there's no need for them to think about those things. Aid does have their own regulation. They have ADAR and they have the codification of the, um, the grant regulations. Well, they used to have their own codification of the grant regulations. But I do think they need to really spend time matching it to their realities. When did Lost in Regulation come along? Is that it's probably about ten years old now, isn't it? Yes, it is. Actually, it's uh, eleven years old. So, right. um, so what was what was the motivation behind that? Who were you? Who were you sort of mainly aiming it at? And what what were the sort of what were the things you wanted it to do? It was therapy. Um, right. <laughs> so it was. Um, so this was. I spent six years working on the Iraq program, which was really. Very intense, uh, you know, 24-7. I had no vacations, um, really very little time, downtime. So that project finished and I decided, okay, I w- I'm going to take some time off and regroup and see what, I, you know, what I'm going to do next. So two weeks later, I could no longer uh, 
you know, rest. I just not built like that. So I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I have this time. I need to do something useful. Uh, maybe I'll read. And I'll, I always love to read. So I started reading, you know, trying to understand like what happened with some of the cases that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and how we've dealt with it and the audits that we've gone through and trying to understand why, you know, why those things came up, why they were all of a sudden, all of these disallowances that these contractors that were implementing work in Iraq and Afghanistan were experiencing. And so as I was reading the regulations, you know, the light bulbs were kind of going off and um, I had to talk to someone and no therapist in the world is going to talk to you about USAID regulations. So I decided, well, you know, this is a perfect opportunity to put it in the blog. And surprisingly, I actually got quite, you know, a lot of the nerd alert. There are a lot of nerds out there who, who wanted to read about this. And so this was just sort of started as a therapy for me, and but also kind of reaching out to others to see if they wanted to comment and bring in their experiences um, and talk about some of the things that they were experiencing in trying to apply some of the regulations and some of the constraints that the agency puts on us and whether or not it made sense and maybe try to get to the bottom of it together. You're not simply investigating the minutiae of regulation. Quite often, it seemed to me you were sort of taking a few steps back and trying to get people to think about the regulation within a much bigger framework, whether that meant them interrogating their own assumptions and behaviours, or actually thinking about whether the regulation was fit for purpose, you can be doing either or both of those things. But you don't you're not just focusing on the on the tiny detail in a way that maybe specialists talking to other specialists, you're you're not just talking to, you know, to people who've got your own experience, you're talking to people that you want to sort of bring up to speed, I guess, is that is is that a fair way to to look? Yes. And, And also, you know, trying to put it in English, you know, trying to put it in in layman's language, there's a lot of, I mean, there's plenty of books out there and and, and, and things that I, ha- I have read and I enjoy, but, you know, not everyone has the same command of English and not the same understanding of the regulations and the laws and the environment in which we work. And so what I was trying to do is, is sort of breaking down for myself in the way where I could explain it to someone who doesn't have that background, but also put it out there for others. And also, you know, trying to see how the auditors, how the government people see it from their standpoint with their constraints, because I have now experienced, you know, the the issues that they have in managing these programs. And so I was trying to give people a perspective of, you know, their contracting officer is not really, uh, or agreement officer is not there to get them. You know, they're not maliciously trying to put them out of business. They also have to comply with the requirements of their jobs. And this is how they see it. So maybe if we work together, we, you know, we can find a resolution uh, which is acceptable to all parties. So it started out as a blog site in its own right, Lost in Regulation, and then you moved it on to LinkedIn, which is where people who haven't come across it can find it. Do you sort of feel the, the sort of seeds of a, of a post beginning to, to sprout and you think, ah, that, that's, that's going to be my next one? How do they, how do they sort of bubble up um, and become something you've got to, to sort of set down in writing? I love that question because it's, it's you know, it, it's, it, it actually, 
it's almost a uh, sort of daily or weekly <laughs> maybe <laughs> that I hear something uh, that's happening or maybe someone posts something on LinkedIn, um, which is why, you know, social media is incredible. And I, I think LinkedIn as a community is an incredible thing. Something that happens with my projects that I am managing now or something uh, that my husband tells me, you know, that from the projects that he's managing and, and he has a challenge or my friends, and they call me and they say, you know, I don't know how to deal with this. What do you think about this? And there's always something new. I mean, it's incredible. I thought that I have exhausted um, all of the questions that everyone always had about, you know, USAID projects, but apparently not. I mean, every week, um, sometimes daily, something comes up that I think, well, you know, I really need to write about this. If it's really interesting, then I will write about it. If it's, if, if it's something that's sort of like a noise that gets really high and a lot of people are talking about it, like the compensation, for example, um, that was the recent discussion of what is fair. You know, then then you sort of decide, okay, I need to bring all of these opinions together and 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 try to dissect what actually needs to be done. So yeah, there's a question of timing, isn't there? You don't want to necessarily just rush to put something into the arena. You you take your time and think about you know when yeah, is absolutely. the right time I do, I, to, I to formulate something coherent. Right, exactly. I research everything. Um, you know, and, and some of the things, uh, I think it's annoying to a lot of my colleagues, but I don't answer questions, uh, even if I've given that answer multiple times, I will still go back and I will, I will reread whatever the regulation, whatever the clause or the policy, I will reread it every time just to make sure that I'm right. Um, and nothing has changed. And, and also I find that if you read it in different circumstances, it may mean different things to you. And the regulation, at least in the US, the regulations are written, you know, the government is looking for you to incur cost that a reasonable business person would incur under the circumstances under which you're incurring it. So it's at that time when you incur a cost, it has to be reasonable, for example. So situations change, you know, what is reasonable in Baghdad uh, may not be reasonable, you know, in Croatia. Those situations have to be taken into consideration and researched and uh, rethought before you advise people on something. So I think to me, that's part of the game. It's sort of a detective thing. I guess a, a side benefit is it must help you to to sharpen your own thinking. I mean, we all have sort of opinions and then we have sort of half form opinions. But when you've actually got to put something down on on the screen, that's a really good way to really focus your thinking, isn't it? And to make up your mind on whatever you're writing about. Exactly. And also to put it to test, really, you know, if when I put it out there to LinkedIn or the blog post or, or the blog community, I'm really putting myself out there um, open to comments and, and people do comment um, <laughs> and, and they have their own opinions, which I love, you know, and I love to read uh, what people think about it and maybe they disagree. And I love when they disagree because then I would like to know why. And we can have a discussion. And so it's testing my own compliance theories and um, application and innovative approaches and, and putting it out to the community because there's a lot, you know, a lot more people who have uh, a lot more experience than, than I do and, and in different countries that, that can absolutely contribute, which, you know, I find the Humentum uh, specifically I started participating in the, I think it was in the email, 
it was like an email community, I think maybe like 10 years ago. Um, and it started and it was a grants and contracts group. And it was a, it was just sort of an email chain that we all used to write to each other with questions and answers, which was fantastic. I mean, it was invaluable, especially like you say, you know, this is, was the, during the time when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan and we were implementing this massive projects for which the regulations were not written yet or, you know, haven't now either, but um, we were all trying to figure out how to deal with situations, you know, immediately. And so that was this community, APF forum or something like that, where you would, um, you would just put it out to this email universe of people you'd never met, and they would give you advice for free. It was fantastic. I would like the fact that you, you, ta- you tackle topics both really quite small, such as the costs allowed for transporting a pet if you're working overseas, but then very big things like ethical policy and indeed the whole system's, you know, fitness for purpose and how how money gets spent and how it gets accounted for. So you can you can zoom in into the tiny or you can you can have a really wide shot and look at the entire terrain. Yeah, no, it, and, and you find that once you start getting into some of the compliance aspects, you're trying to understand where it all came from. You know, it all goes uh, back to, uh, at least in the U.S., you know, appropriation laws and the whys, you know, why, the, you know, why Congress appropriates money and why they pass certain regulations and why an agency passes a certain policy. And so you're trying to understand whether or not you know, this is something that still applies and still makes sense, or whether this is something that needs to be highlighted, needs to be talked about and removed because it is actually an impediment and it creates waste. So I think, you know, this, it's, it's sort of an inevitable once you start investigating those things, you kind of get up to the bigger picture. So here's a big question, Olga. Is it your view that the system as it currently operates for for compliance and ensuring that basically ensuring taxpayers' money is spent in the appropriate ways, that it is basically fundamentally doing the job it's supposed to? Or I took from some of your, your writing that perhaps there was something more fundamental that needed to be interrogated. You, you wrote on one post about a compliance system that lacks key qualities such as simplicity, accessibility, sequencing, and so on. Hmm, that's an excellent question. Where um, on, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, I would say um, it does require at least for USAID, you know, at least for uh, uh, foreign aid, I think it does require a significant overhaul, and it also requires a significant investment on behalf of the agency in training uh, their own staff in making sure that they design programs that make sense and they put them in the contractual or award instruments that make sense and that really focus on delivery of aid or performance for specific you know targets rather than compliance which is currently probably costing everyone 40% of whatever of every dollar that they receive from USAID which is huge. Which is huge. I mean, it's it's ridiculous because I wrote in one of the articles that, and I shared this with the agency during um, general counsel meeting last year, only in the last 
12 years, uh, we've had more than 50 different regulations or policies or adjustments to the regulations that have been passed and included in our contracts and awards that we have to comply with. You know, this is in addition to what was there before. It's a tremendous amount of compliance, which costs money. And the companies don't, you know, they don't tend to uh, spend their own money on that. They charge it back to the government. So what stands in the way of a lighter compliance regime? Is it as fundamental as the risk of, of corruption and misappropriation? And is, does it come down to something as, as basic and human as that? You know, we have an expression in Russian that says fear has big eyes. Um, yes, I mean, you can say yes, but my goodness, if we don't, if we take all of this away, this money is just going to be squandered away and wasted. But um, there are plenty of ways that the money gets wasted, and we certainly don't lack regulations. So if you look at, yes. you know, some of the recoveries that the uh, Department of Justice had just last year, you know, it's, it's in billions of dollars of money that the contractors are paying back. So because they failed to comply, you know, whether maliciously or whether uh, not knowing. Um, so I think what stands in the way, I think a championship, like a real championship at, at the agency where you have to have someone who says, we're different, we're different than other agencies. We work in different areas and we work under different circumstances. And um, the purpose of aid, well, the purpose of relief is to provide relief and provide you know, every possible dollar of relief to the beneficiaries. And then the purpose of aid is uh, to transfer know-how, you know, to transfer things that we already know how to do. And so it really shouldn't cost a lot of money in research, you know. Um, and if we're doing research projects, if we're doing grant projects, then we have to understand what it is that we're trying to achieve and stop if we can't achieve it. There has to be flexibility in how we administer this funding, but you have to have a real champion at the agency you know, that's going to take it all the way to State Department and all the way to the White House and say, we need different regulations for us. We need a complete overhaul so we don't spend 40, 60 cents of every dollar on compliance uh, or security or other things that are not actually benefiting the people we're trying to help. Another thing that you wrote, which, which has stuck in my memory, is you said if USAID is celebrating 50 years in Indonesia, that really isn't something which should be celebrated. That's a, that's a sign of failure. And to an outsider, that seems entirely um, legitimate as, a, as an opinion. Does that point to some kind of fundamental mindset issue? The fact that 50 years in Indonesia, providing aid could be, could be celebrated rather than thinking, well, what is it that has failed? Because I, I remember your, um, your very clear and eloquent graph where you talk about where in development terms a country sits and the kind of aid which is appropriate to the country at that stage in its development. So I guess I'm saying, I guess what I'm asking is, does that, does that point to some sort of mindset problem about the whole nature of the enterprise? I mean, as you say, you should really be doing yourselves out of a job if things are going well, or there should be, needs should not be located in the same place for five decades. Correct. I mean, and so I think, you know, this, it's a complex uh, question because obviously there are other actors that are involved in the country. We have no, uh, you know, we, we have no way of, managing what other countries do in their political environment and, and economic environment. But if we're, if we're conditioning aid on 
And I'm not talking about relief, right? So relief is, no, is, is it's, no, it's understood. I mean, you have a situation, you know, you go and you help. But if we're conditioning aid on the country's, you know, as aid puts it, in the journey to self-reliance, which is what, the, you know, the current policies, which I love, you know, this is what uh, Mark Green is talking about. You know, we have to work ourselves out of the job. We have a journey to self-reliance um, as a matrix. And so you have to have a baseline of where every country is and you ha- you know where you want them to be, I guess, for our national interests and for um, other countries, you know, national interests around them. So you're trying to figure out a problem of what interventions you're going to put out there to get them from A to Z, right, from the baseline to where you want them to be. And you cannot continuously invest in the same thing, which produces no results, right? So you have to have smart programming that if it's not already been done somewhere and you can just put it out there, you know, buy this service and put it out and put, put it out there and hold the counterparts responsible, then maybe this is something that you, you know, test out through a program design and you get our ideas from different experts and from local experts and local companies and local communities, but also international experts. And you try out different things to move the needle. But the programs have to be adaptive. They have to be agile. You cannot be doing the same thing again and again and expect, you know, different results. Different results. So, which is, you know, oftentimes that's what we're doing. I mean, that's why you end up, you know, with 50 years in Indonesia and, you know, it's a wonderful mission and I love Indonesian mission, but if you ask them, do you think there has been progress in 50 years? They will probably say yes, but is there enough progress? What do you see as the drivers of positive change in the sector? You know, we talked about things which would benefit from changing. So if positive change is to come, where do you think it's most productively going to come from? Well, in the aid space here, at least, I mean, USAID has to um, fundamentally change uh, how they, I mean, actually not fundamentally change. I don't want to say that. I, I want to say that they have to go back to their roots, actually. They've, they've done this before. They have created, you know, smart programs that made a difference, that they've graduated countries, you know, where they had a targeted approach to specific country in terms of development. They transferred know-how at the speed of relevance and they brought the country to graduation. And then they may have passed on to uh, MCC, you know, or other organizations for additional health, but it's a different level, you know, than USAID. So, it, you know, it's been done. I think what aid needs to do is go back to the roots and go back to, you know, understanding how, where the need for the programs comes from, how to design the best possible solution, engaging vastly different actors, and then how to create uh, projects and contractual award instruments to get the best out of those solutions, to really reach results uh, and not be afraid to, um, you know, move away from something and start something new, but it has to be done timely so that you don't waste the time and money, you know, because if you put something on hold and say, well, it's not working, you know, we'll take it again in five years, the time has changed, you know, it's already, you already lost the momentum. So I think, you know, it has to come from the agency. The agency has to fundamentally rethink what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they should do this more efficiently. My guest on this episode of Social X, the podcast from Humentum, was Olga All. Austin Regulation started out as a freestanding venture, 
but last summer she moved it over to LinkedIn, which is where you can find her most recent thoughts and guidance on not getting lost in regulation, making following rules fun since 1996, as she puts it. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast or follow Humentum on SoundCloud for more episodes. And until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye.